0: A long portion of Scripture today, three verses, that comprise the psalm, the 133rd. It says, Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon descending upon the the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, Life forevermore. Somebody imagined a conference of all of the tools of Jesus in his carpentry shop in Nazareth. And a brother hammer presided over the meeting. And the other tools thought he should leave because he was too noisy. And Brother Hammer said, well, if I have to leave, I insist Brother Screw has to leave as well because you always have to turn him around and around to get him to do anything. Brother Screw said, well, listen, if you want me to leave, I think Brother Plain should leave as well this meeting because, after all, Brother Plain's work is such surface work. There's no depth to his life. And then, of course, Brother Plain... Piped up and said, well, you know, if I have to leave, I think Brother Rule should leave. He's always measuring other folks, thinks he's the only right one around. And then he got a little bit upset and he accused now Brother Sandpaper, saying, you're always so rough. You rub people the wrong way, you know. Well, in the middle of the argument, in walks Jesus Christ, puts on his apron to do his work and to build a podium of wood. For which to preach the gospel in Nazareth And he uses the hammer and the screw And the plane and the rule and the sandpaper And all the other tools So that when it was all finished Brother Saw advised the rest of the tools Saying, brothers, I perceive that we are all workers together In the work of the Lord A corny parable, perhaps But it illustrates an underlying important truth And that is, whenever we do the work of God, unity is not an option. It's essential. Psalm 133, written by David, extols the importance and the influence of a people in unity, harmony, the absence of strife and dissension. Um, It was written after a period of conflict and division, it is thought. There were several tribes in Israel, and for a period they were all fighting each other. David manages to get them into a united monarchy for the first time. And so he gathers all of the tribes together in 2 Samuel 5, perhaps that's the setting, and they all anoint him as the king of the nation. So for the first time in a long time, all these tribes are now in unity together. And they would be going up to Jerusalem annually for the feasts from different parts of Israel, all in unity together. And so that's the theme unity, harmony, and getting along as a people of God, which isn't always easy because we are so different from one another. And if you just looked around this morning at people, what we're wearing, how we look, the different styles of hair, different backgrounds, and if we were to probe further and talk about controversial issues, you may be surprised just how much we disagree on certain things. And yet here we are all together, In the world, we would be driven apart. In Christ, we are all one. One person went so far as to say the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. Were it not for the storm on the outside, you couldn't stand the stench on the inside. I don't know that I'd go that far. That's certainly not the intended purpose of the Lord in building His church. But it is that we are in unity. And it was the ancient Greek writer Aesop who is credited with saying, united we stand, divided we fall. But it was Jesus Christ, you remember, who said to his disciples, a house or a city that is divided against itself can never stand. And we should learn the lesson that we can actually add to hindering the work of Christ by our disunity. If we don't work together, we make things more difficult. There were two guys riding a tandem bicycle. Bicycle belt for two. They see this huge, steep hill in front of them, and they trudge up, struggling to get to the top of the hill. Finally, they make it. The guy in the front at the top of the hill said, Man, that was the hardest hill I've ever gone up. That was tough. The guy in the back said, Yeah, and if I wouldn't have had my hands on the brakes the whole time, we would have gone backwards. <laughs> they needed to learn a lesson. Working together would be it. Three verses in this psalm. The first verse speaks of the importance of unity. The second two verses speak of the influence of unity. Its importance is at the very onset described by the word behold. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, if ever there was a biblical word, it's the word behold. It ranks right up there with verily. It is truly a Bible word. Behold is a word meant to draw attention to something. The equivalent would be, hey man, check this out. Look at this. Here is a sight to behold. Here is a sight to see. What is it? Brothers dwelling together in unity. The idea of brothers, linguistically in the Hebrew language, refers to one race, one stock, the children of Israel. He's basically saying this, We come from the same heritage. God delivered our forefathers out of Egypt. He took us all through the desert. He gave us all of the tribes this land in which we live. And it's good when all of us as the children of Israel are dwelling together in unity, but how rare it was... Because they fought so often. Sometimes the northern kingdom against the southern kingdom. Sometimes a tribe against another tribe. So it was beautiful. It was lovely to see them in harmony. But it was rare. Sort of like any normal family. I think uh, of my own family. I'm one of four boys. I'm the fourth, the youngest, the baby of the family. So my mom was the only female influence in our home. And we were always at each other's throat. Four boys fighting constantly. And I think she would agree and even add to this psalm, Behold how good and miraculous it is to see brothers dwelling together in unity. It is a beautiful sight. And it speaks to us. After all, unity was on the mind of Jesus when he prayed in John 17 for his then future church. Here's Jesus facing the cross. The shadow of the cross is already upon him. And he prays for us. What kind of stuff does he pray for? Well, listen. He said, I do not pray for these alone, that is the twelve apostles, but also those who will believe on me through their word. That'd be us. We believe on Jesus through the testimony of the scriptures. What does he pray for us? That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. So on the mind of Jesus is that the church be one so that the world would know that God sent Jesus. Unity is also the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, to bring us together, to unify us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, By one Spirit you were all baptized into one body, and have all been made to drink unto one spirit, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. A unified, loving group was the purpose of the Son, is the purpose of the Spirit, and unity is what Satan desires to undo. His great desire is division. Let's divide this group. Let's get them ununified. Remember, Jesus said, Satan, the enemy, doesn't come except to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And oh, how he loves to destroy unity among God's people. I'm comforted by the fact that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's comforting. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church. But what troubles me is that we seem to be able to do it without any help. The church, in many cases, is self-destructing. We find stuff ourselves to divide over and to fight about, to quarrel and to quibble. There was a church in Scotland, after the service let out, the janitor was cleaning up, found a note, obviously by somebody who was bored that day, and somebody who had been fighting with somebody else in the church, because it said on the note a little poem that said, To dwell above with those we love will certainly be glory, But to dwell below with those we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) The church at Philippi understood that. It was a New Testament group uh, in harmony, with purpose, but there were a couple of women in the church who were fighting to the extent that they were causing division among the rest of the church. And Paul writes about it. He said, I implore, or I beg, I strongly implore, and he names them Yodia and Sintici, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So these petty differences were threatening to disrupt the unity and the fellowship of the church. Did you know it's estimated that if the American colonies would have been more unified at the time of the American Revolution, that the war for independence would have lasted only about a year? As it was, it lasted eight bloody years. The problem is they weren't unified together. Too many differences between them. The fighting would have been quicker if they were in one accord. Well, what does it mean to be unified? What are we to be unified over? And is there ever a time when we should divide? What are those times? Well, scripturally, let's look at what unity is not. When the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, talks about us being unified as brethren... That unity does not refer to organizational unity, per se. It's not talking administratively. Uh, the parking lot committee with the carpet committee and the women's committee and then the committee over all the committees meeting with the elders committee. That's not the idea. It's not over-organization. In fact, I'd say the early church in the first few chapters of Acts was the most disorganized group of people, if there ever was one, from a worldly perspective. Certainly God had it in control. But you had about 20,000, it's estimated, members in a the church. There were no bylaws. There was no New Testament. They had no songbooks. No elders, deacons per se, as of yet. Um, no nursery workers. No cops directing traffic in the parking lot. But the Holy Spirit was in charge. Some people think, well, you know, if we could just get everybody to drop their barriers, their uh, denominational differences, and the independent churches, and if we could all meet, not in separate buildings, but one large building. Of course, we'll have to blur the truth lines a little bit, but it would be worth it. If we just get organized as one big group, it sounds good, but history records What happens when the church becomes too centralized in its organization? It happened in history under Constantine and his successors. There was a time, if you remember your church history, when by the Middle Ages there was one centralized church with one central head in Europe, and was the church strong and pure? The church was corrupt. The church was strong outwardly, economically, but spiritually and inwardly it was very, very weak. And corrupt. So it doesn't mean organizational unity. Uh, Neither does unity mean uniformity. It doesn't mean everybody should be alike, like me, actually. How boring that would be if everyone had to dress alike, everybody in a suit and tie, everybody voting the same way I do, and everybody carrying the King James Bible, the kind that Paul preached from. You know, cookie-cutter Christians are predictable and usually very ineffective. It doesn't mean uniformity. Uh, Take any family, for that matter. When you have a group of kids in the same family, are they all alike? There's certain similarities, but there's a lot of differences. Same gene pool or combination of gene pools. Same family, same roof. You have one kid that's very soft-spoken, One kid that's very loud and outspoken. And several in between. In the church of Jesus Christ, there are differences in personalities, in styles, in methods of worship. It is idealistic and unrealistic to think that we're all going to agree on everything. Some are pre-tribulation in their eschatology. Some are post-toasties. Some follow Calvin. Some follow Arminius. Some don't care because they're both dead, and some don't even know what I'm talking about. They're brand new believers who are going. What is that all about? It's probably better you don't know. Some are kooky charismatics, and some are fuzzy fundamentalists. Uh, some believe in high, staunch church worship with organ music and stained glass and robes, and others. Froth and roll and swing and shout. And and there's every variation in between those extremes. And I'm glad that there are so many different styles of churches to minister to all those different kinds of people. Else they'd all come here. There's variety in the church, and I like it. And we're not always going to agree. In fact, if two people always agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. That's why Augustine put it so well when he said, in essentials, unity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. It's a great, great axiom, isn't it? In the essentials of the Christian faith, there must be unity. But there are non-essentials. Liberty, in all things, charity. Now, there are things that we must to be strong believers, divide over. There are some essentials of the Christian faith that you cannot bend and must say to a group who would espouse them, I separate from you, I can't have fellowship with that. The person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says he's God, not a ascended master of some sort. Not one of many. He is God. Salvation or justification by faith, not by works. There are some essentials that make a Christian a Christian. And that's why Jude said defend the faith, literally translated, put up a good fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There's times to divide, but there's plenty of other times where there's non-essentials. Do you baptize forward or backward? Well, I sprinkle. (gasps) You sprinkle, you're supposed to immerse. Or you immerse, you're supposed to sprinkle. There's enough non-essentials that, okay, that doesn't matter. The essentials are covered. We don't have to divide over the smaller stuff. What does it mean? What is unity? Well, the Bible talks about this stuff. the, The idea is not disagreements as much as it is dissension and strife. Unity is the absence of that. It's the absence of dissension and strife among believers. Do you remember the first sin man committed? It was to disrupt the unity that he had with God. Remember the second sin man committed? It was disrupting the unity man had with his fellow man. And when Abel's blood was shed on the ground, that put an end to the brotherhood of man. It was disrupted. And from that moment in history onward, we have always had this proclivity, this leaning toward division. Uh, we, we find all sorts of things to divide over. It's very, very natural for us to do so. That's why Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 4. Make every effort. We have to. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in other words it's the unity of the spirit it's produced by the holy spirit but it's manifested in us it's shown by forgiveness patience humility love and unity among god's people it's one of the greatest evangelism tools in the world because it's in stark contrast to all of their disunity it makes such a difference now how should we act toward other believers Well, succinctly put, Paul wrote this. If one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice. So when we hurt, or one person hurts, we're to hurt with that person, empathize, understand, encourage, lift up, teach, instruct. When somebody else is going through a good time, rejoice with them. As the Bible says, weep with those that weep, rejoice with those that rejoice. Now, I don't know if you've discovered this, but I have. It's easier to weep with those that weep than it is to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Somebody's going through a bad experience in their life, a trial, a time of depression. You're not. Okay, you can humble yourself. You can hug that person, pray for that person. But when that person gets extraordinarily blessed, and you don't, or you think, That guy doesn't deserve it. I do. He's blessed, and I'm not. It's a lot harder to rejoice with that person than it is to weep when somebody is going through a tough time. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's look at unity and a church that didn't practice it. The Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's an example of what not to do. First of all, there's two verses I draw your attention to. Verse 10, Paul describes unity in the New Testament sense. I plead with you, brethren, verse 10. That's strong language. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind... In the same judgment. That is, have a uniform testimony of what is essential. A uniform testimony of essential truth. uh, Essential doctrine that comes from the Word of God. Speak the same thing. Verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, so Chloe's household ratted on this church, That there are contentions among you. Interesting word, contentions. It means the tearing of a garment. You've got this fabric that has been ripped apart, and there's four pieces of it. Look at the next verse. Now, this I say, each of you says, This is what they're saying. I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that would be the Apostle Peter, or I am of Christ. Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? There were four leaders, and rather than being unified, this church was split by these leaders. It wasn't the leader's fault. It was the church's fault. They polarized around the the styles, the personalities. Can you just hear them arguing? There's a large group who loved the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul's great. He's cosmopolitan. He's a man about town. He reaches out to the Gentiles, yet he is a Jewish rabbi. He knows the Greek customs and the Greek languages, yet he is a Hebrew. Then there were those who said, oh, but Apollos. Now, I love when Apollos fills in for Paul. What an eloquent speaker he is. It says that in Acts 18. He was an eloquent man. The words just tumble off the lips of Apollos. Then there were others who, no, Peter. Now, Peter's more blue-collar. We like Peter better. He's earthy. He was a fisherman. Besides that, he was one of the original 12. He was first generation with Jesus. Then there was a fourth group, I think was the worst of all. They were the spiritual snobs who just said, I don't follow any earthly leader at all. I'm just of Christ. I don't need any leader, any pastor, any teacher at all. Just me and God, man, we're like this. So you had four elite groups polarized around personalities broken up, fragmented, like a garment ripped rather than embracing each other. They were dividing really over non-essentials. I heard about a visitor to an insane asylum. The visitor noticed a peculiar sight. There was one man guarding a hundred inmates. He thought, hmm, this could be dangerous. And he asked the guard, Aren't you a bit frightened that one day these people are going to get their heads together and rebel and escape? The guard smiled very calmly, chuckled. He said, listen, it's because of their very inability to get their heads together and work cooperatively together that they're here. Very suggestive. The point, I think, in our case is this. To try to preach the gospel without unity is insanity. Because the heart of the gospel is that it binds us all, not divides us all. We preach a gospel of love and forgiveness. There are essentials. Sin is sin, and it must be repented of. But you cross that barrier, and the gospel tears down the barriers. That's the heart of the gospel. For he is our peace, said Paul in Ephesians, who has broken down the middle wall of partition. And I've experienced this kind of unity around the world. I've been in other cultures. I've been in China where I don't understand what they're saying. I don't want to eat what they're feeding me, but I do anyway. There's so many language differences, but they're Chinese Christians. I've been in India where there's Indian Christians. I've been in the Middle East with Arab Christians and Jewish Christians. And it's that last term that makes everything else irrelevant. They're Christians. They're brothers. Brethren. I don't understand what they're saying in their church services. But you know, there's always at least one universal word. It's the word hallelujah. Everybody understands that in any language. There's a binding together. Whenever we divide over essentials, who is Jesus? What is salvation? Those kinds of issues. Whenever we divide over that, we get strengthened. We separate the chaff from the wheat. But whenever we divide over non-essential styles, methods, personalities, we can only get weaker. Maybe you can feel for the poor father who had sons who always argued with each other. Every time he came home, they were fighting about something. One day he'd had enough. He lined up his sons and took the oldest, the strongest, and he said, here, gave him a stick, snap this stick. So the kid in disgust broke it. Dad said, good! Good! Now here's two sticks. Break them both. Snap them. Handed him three sticks. And four sticks. And five. And six. And finally he had to admit defeat. He couldn't snap all of them at one time. That many sticks was too strong. And then the father said, Son, whenever we unify, we increase our strength. In unity there is strength. A house divided itself by itself against itself cannot stand. Anybody can pick you guys off one at a time but when you band together in unity you're stronger you can't snap it is important behold check it out what a sight to see when brethren dwell together in unity it's important let's look now at its influence verse 2 and 3 of proverbs or excuse me of psalm 133 it is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments It's like the dew of Mount Hermon, Hermon, that's up in the north, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded His blessing, life forevermore. Genuine unity based on love and the faith makes such an impact on the world. It's such an influence. Like when the churches in the south were burned down and other churches who were not of that denomination rallied to build them back up again. What an impact that makes. That's why Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have one for another. He didn't say, They'll know you're my disciples by the fact that you love them, though we should. But they'll know you're my disciples by the fact that you love one another. There's unity among your ranks. It makes a difference. However, this love is often talked about, seldom practiced. I kept an article. It's about a decade old. Remember the time when the scams of the televangelists surfaced morally, economically, and they were slamming each other in the press? Remember those days? Well, there was a newspaper that picked up on that and wrote an article entitled, People Who Love. I won't read it all to you, but listen to these sentences. TV evangelists profess their affection but throw bombshells. Ouch. No word is more often mentioned in the battle of the television evangelists than love. However, said the article, and it listed all of the accusations they were throwing at each other. What does unity do? How does it influence us? Two ways. It spreads to others. That's the idea of the oil dripping down. Notice three phrases. Verse 2, running down is mentioned twice. And then descending in verse 3. The point is this. When you see unity among brethren, other people pick up on it and it makes an impact. It spreads to others. Now, the picture is of a guy getting anointed. Aaron, the high priest. The high priest was anointed. It's described in Leviticus 8. Moses would pour oil on him. In the midst of his brethren, he would be anointed for service. But when you picture anointing with oil, it's not taking a dab of olive oil and doing this. They would take a vase of it, and they'd pour it, and it spread. It hit the top of the head, ran down the hair, got into the beard, dripped down on under and through the collar of the high priest, down his shoulders, onto the breastplate where he kept the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so this oil spread. It didn't stay in one little place. It spread. And so it is with unity. Unity among people influences other people, either for good or for bad. Remember when 12 spies were sent out to spy out the land from Kadesh Barnea and to look at what it would be like? They came back. Two of them said, Man, let's go for it. God's in it. Ten of them, gave the report of unbelief. The majority, in unity with each other, spread the bad report much quicker. And that whole generation died in the wilderness. Or how about this one? The children of Israel are going from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, but there is a group in unity together called the mixed multitude. And they start complaining about everything. They don't like the manna. They don't like the water. They don't like the wilderness. They don't like that person. And their disunity, excuse me, their unity of dissatisfaction spread throughout the rest of the children of Israel. It hurt them. Now, it can also work in the opposite direction, for the good. There's a great phrase in the New Testament used often. It says, they were together in one accord. doesn't mean a Honda car. They were together in unity, in one accord. And that spread to the rest of the church. Now listen to this letter written by an unbelieving Greek writer in the year A.D. 200. Looking at Christians, he said this, It's incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Jesus has put it into their hearts that they are brethren. That's why we need to rediscover in this technological age of the internet, this impersonal age, the importance of the body of Christ, working together. I had you turn to Corinthians one time. I'm going to have you turn to First Corinthians the second time, this time to the twelfth chapter of that book, First Corinthians chapter 12. A few verses I draw your attention to it speaks of diversity and unity all at the same time. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. You have a gift. You have a talent. We're all to use what God has given us for everybody else's sake. Look at verse 12 as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ for by one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. What's he saying? He's simply saying this. The church is to be like a human body. You have a brain. That's Christ. He's the head. He gives the orders. The finger doesn't say, I don't like being a finger. I'd rather be a nose. Christ gives the orders. And just like our body works, the church ought to work. Your body your, your body's a marvel. Just your brain. six uh, 60 million nerve units estimated able to store messages, able to send information, uh, controlling 600 different muscles in your body, uh, uh, connected by synapse to the skin nerves and to the eyes and the ears. So that, as the brain gives out the messages and receives the messages, your body works in a very smooth, fluid operation, all working together. One of the greatest feelings, is it not, is a healthy body. And whenever... The body isn't working. One part isn't working. Either it's not receiving the message or not cooperating with the rest. What do we call that? A disease. It's sick. Something's wrong with it. A member isn't functioning. I know this by experience. One evening after I was speaking, uh, guest speaking at another place, coming back home, um, I had abdominal pain, didn't think much of it, figured it would pass. I didn't. About 1 in the morning, uh, I got up. By 2 in the morning, I was curled up in a fetal position on the floor in extreme pain. Went to the hospital. They asked me questions. They did tests. They looked me over. They couldn't find anything wrong. Next day, they did more tests. And the low light of the test was an interesting radiological examination called a barium enema. Oh, you can imagine. And as I was there on that table, I thought of the words of Job. That which I have feared has come upon me. And then I got angry. I thought, okay, which one of you is it in there that's not cooperating with the rest of my body? Which organ, which tissue group, what is it exactly? Because one little member refused to cooperate, I was in extreme pain. What must the world think as it looks at the church of Jesus Christ? What does it see? A coordinated, beautiful, smooth working body or a jerky movement body? One of the biggest traps of the devil is to get us to draw our swords and fight each other. Rather than fight the real enemy, the devil and his kingdom and his attack upon the Christian faith. Now, when was the last time God used you to bring unity? Reconciliation. With a couple of people or a group or a church. Finally, we'll close with this. The influence of unity is that it refreshes others. That's the idea of the last verse. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon descending on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commands the blessings life forevermore. In hot Mediterranean climate that they have in Israel, um, well, all through the summer, it doesn't rain usually down in Jerusalem. And dew is vital to plant life. And you have these warm, moist sea breezes blowing inland, and when they hit the highlands of uh, the Golan and Mount Hermon, uh, dew precipitates on the highlands. And so it's usually green and lush up top. And uh, the snow melt and the heavy dew, all of the water feeds a couple of common arteries. The Banias River, the Hatzbani River, and they all flow into the Jordan River. And that becomes the life-giving artery all the way through the land of Israel. The point of this passage is that unity is so refreshing. And isn't it refreshing when you see Christians genuinely loving each other and people putting away petty differences and it, it it gives hope, doesn't it? To see genuine love, real Christian stuff go on. I began this message with a parable, fictitious story. I want to close with a real story. It happened here in our fellowship. I got a letter sometime back from a gal who fell on hard times. She has been with our church a long, long time. It was very well to do at one time. Her mother died. Her husband left her. She has had physical problems. She was left with two children as a single mother in an apartment working with no transportation. She wrote a letter, not complaining at all, just checking in and saying, would you just pray for me, pray for us, pray that God would give me a car and pray a few other things. So I did. I also discussed it with our staff and the youth group decided to take this project on. The teenager said, let's get her a car. Let's raise the money. So week after week, car wash after car wash, project after project, they were raising a little bit of money to go out and buy a car and give it to her. One of the members here in the church went by the car wash and said, What are you raising money for? They said, A car. He said, Well, they told him the story. He said, I'll give you a car. Don't tell her I gave it to her. Just give her that car. So they took the rest of the money that they had raised, bought groceries with it, and filled the whole car full of groceries to deliver it to her. She wrote a letter back to the group, and it said, I wanted to write you to tell you how much each of you has touched my life and the lives of my children. Now, as I read this letter, think of what we just read, what unity is, how important it is, and how it spreads and refreshes. It has touched my life and the lives of my children, Brian and Sam. Your love, faith, and generosity has made a tremendous ripple effect to those around me. The first night you delivered food to my door, my boys couldn't believe... Jesus knew or cared that their favorite jam was (laughs) grape-flavored or that they liked creamy peanut butter. Now, we had nicknamed Sam, Sam the Pudding Man, because he demolished his pudding. You brought a huge family-sized case of pudding. Sam thought he had died and gone to the giant pudding cloud in heaven. (laughs) The boy's faith was sealed that night. I truly believe that. And my faith was strengthened tremendously when I answered the door and saw a license plate and car registration on the doorstep. Something inside me leapt for joy. That night was only our second night there in the new apartment, and I didn't know any of my neighbors. Several of them had seen a large group of you, and then when I came out crying like a baby, they freaked out and called the police. The maintenance man, a born-again believer, said the police had been told there was a group of 30 or 40 teenagers in the parking lot and a woman crying with two little kids. (laughs) But, said the police report, the group of teenagers were from a local church and had come to secretly deliver a car to one of their members in need. Everyone from the office to maintenance to neighbors are in awe of what you did. You have opened up countless doors for me to witness. And how great for the police to see teenagers doing something so wonderful in the community. The best is that my grandfather, who always had a closed heart, cannot believe that anyone would give a car to someone or give hundreds of dollars worth of food to his granddaughter and great-grandchildren. We call you our angels at home. I love each of you. What a testimony of love, unity. And how it spreads. Now, when you listen to that story, you could have one of two reactions. You can say, nobody gave me a car. (laughs) Or you can say, boy, God's big enough to handle anything that I have. And I rejoice with that lady. And I rejoice that there's unity in the body of Christ. And then we can be a part of spreading that kind of unity. Yes, we must divide over certain things. There's a whole lot of other stuff we can embrace regardless of the incidentals and promote unity. It's good. It's pleasant. Behold. Check it out. What a sight to behold. Father, we pray that it would be seen in us. It's not just a syrupy sentimentalism where we blur the lines of the truth, but we have unity over the truth. And in the parameters of genuine love and genuine faith in Jesus Christ and His salvation, how we can care for each other and what an impact that will make on everybody. Help us to be a part. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.